When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 561. Uh, I'm going to be performing with the Oddball Fest this Friday in Wontaw, New York. Did I say that right? Do you say Wontog? Wontaw. Should I know that if I'm performing there? Maybe. But uh, we're going to be at the Nikon at Jones Beach Theater with a, a slew of other comedians. Um, some really good comics that you may have heard of, like Louis C.K., Sarah Silverman, Bill Burr, Attell, Hannibal, Jeff Ross, Brody Stevens will be there. Go to oddballfest.com to get tickets. Also, Saturday is the Series 8 premiere of Doctor Who uh, with Peter Capaldi. It is pronounced Capaldi, by the way, because I asked him when we did the event last week in uh, in New York. We screened the uh, show for the Doctor Who, Doctor Who World Tour, and it, it was fantastic. He's, uh, he's going to be a very good doctor. Of course, I always miss when a doctor goes away, but when a new doctor comes in, there's another space in my heart. Uh, like, the, uh, like the hands on a clock. Um, so... That is Saturday. It is premiering at uh, 8 p.m. Doctor Who, and then we are on with the uh, little Who after show at 11:10 Central. Uh, so please watch that and let us celebrate the new season of Doctor Who together. Uh, this episode is Matthew Weiner, who created a show called Mad Men and uh, also wrote on a show called The Sopranos. And uh, he's an incredibly interesting guy. Obviously, super smart. And if you if you really want to, if you really want to learn how to craft something, an idea, Matt is a good guy to listen to because uh, the man has an incredible eye for detail, and he's super, super, super smart. So uh, he has a movie out right now, uh, which actually it's. I mean, depending on when you listen to this, it opens August twenty second. But uh, it stars Owen Wilson, Zach Galifianakis, Amy Poehler. The film's called "Are You Here?" He wrote and directed it, and uh, you know, it's. I mean, he's already. You know, Mad Men still even hasn't even played out yet there's still a handful more episodes to air next year and uh, matt's already doing other stuff so uh, i'm very pleased to hear this he was a wonderful to talk to here's the nerds podcast number 561 with matt weiner also you can see us bowl against him on all-star celebrity bowling we bowled against the Mad Men cast a while back on our youtube channel so uh watch matt bowl and now listen to him talk start the thing now entering nerdist.com Yeah, this lot's almost 100 years old. 
There's, if you started ripping the walls open, you'd find some shit. Saying, I think it was Desilu. Yeah, our, yeah. Our, our, our stage was the original I Love Lucy stage. That's cool. That's good. That's yeah. a good vibe. Especially when we made uh, like 45 shart jokes today. I think we really brought up the... Uh, I think we're really paying tribute to... <laughs> The fine TV legacy of Desilu Productions. We had, yeah. Uh, you can't, you know, you always want to be on a stage that has some kind of good luck to it. Yeah. But um, when I was at Paramount, we were on, on a show, and they go, you know, they shot Citizen Kane on the stage. And I was like, and what happened? <laughs> <laughs> How did we get here? <laughs> you never, like, There's so much crap that goes through it. But, you know, um, Renmar. Yes. Which is right around the corner on here. Gen, yeah, Genji uh, did um, we, uh, Weeds there, and we wanted to go there. They have the highest success record. It's very small. Renmar does? Oh, my God. Like, everything. Like, even Seinfeld was there the first year. Like, there are so many famous shows that went through there. And Ren, Renmar's like, on Coanga, right? Am I yes, right about that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The one across from Technicolor. That's awesome. This yeah. one... Have if you saw the list of people who had shot there, it's like when you go to a Broadway theater in the back, they tell you all the plays that were in it, and some of them are good and some are bad. Like yeah. everything there made it. And just like superstition wise, I kind of wanted to be there. Well, that's so funny that uh, because when I don't know if you guys are still shooting Mad Men in the same place, but in, we are, but we're, we're done. Well, you're done. You're, yeah. You're, you shot. Yes, yes. We but, shot there for seven years. But what's interesting about those studios, about that studio, is that. I've been there to shoot other things, and all of the offices look like um, the original Sterling Cooper offices. My, uh, part of the reason we picked the studio. And, and you, you guys it. just cleaned them up. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you, you just cleaned up no, the studio. No, no. We redid everything, but we did like the idea that we could shoot anywhere in that building because it's from the period. And there's a lot of furniture that was left behind. They just, when, when yeah, 76, Union 76, uh, the oil company ran it. And owned it. It was their building. And then they bought all the houses next door and turned it into a studio. So the tower is still there and everything. But we, they just left all the furniture behind. And it's really valuable. It There's looks- like all this incredible mid-century furniture. And they've redone some of it. We, used to, we shot on the, the top floor, which, which if you, they gutted it finally. They, unfortunately, they re, you know, renovated it for different reasons. But we, um, we fixed a lot of the stuff up. But the, the top floor of it, it was a, a Oklahoma oil company. And the entire top floor was two offices. And in the center, it was open to the world. And I was like, what was this, a helipad? And they're like, no, it was a barbecue. Oh, shit. It was a barbecue in the top of the middle of the building. Which is, all, which is I think they realized at that time was not a good idea. <laughs> I don't know. They, they didn't want to be too far from home. <laughs> they're like, uh, Oklahoma oil guys. So they just opened this, the roof. They, it was just like a big open pit. And like, a, you know, with a, it's like a, for a party. It was I really guess that's nice. what you do if you have Oklahoma oil money. You're just like, I want a skyscraper, but I want to make sure we got a barbecue. I'm, I will not go to Los Angeles <laughs> exactly. without a goddamn indoor barbecue pit. <laughs> like, okay, okay. <laughs> that runs on oil. They just, they just ran it on oil. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, but that was a, I, I love that lot's really interesting. They, it's they great. Fixed it, they fixed it up over the years, too. Oh, it's, years. Uh, it's very, I mean, you know, it has its charm. Unfortunately, there were escalators that went in between the floors and they closed them up because they couldn't repair them at a certain point so the hallways are really long and scary <laughs> like the longest hallways you've ever seen like yeah. to the point like I remember there's a door right across the hall from us but our our hallway is literally six or seven hundred feet long from the elevator Jesus Christ and I was there late at night one night and there was a knock on the door and I opened up the door and there was nobody there and no. I was like they, I guess they had gone right across the hall it's the only place you can go that was fast enough, but I just thought there was no one else there. It was it was a great horror movie moment. That's that that is that is a really creepy. That oh my building God. is really creepy. There's some ghosts in there, but I, yeah. I everything I've had a great vibe there. 
And the desk that I have that I wrote the entire series at was in the office when I came in. Oh, that's, yeah. th- did you keep it? I'm still there. So oh, okay. we'll see. I'm not going to say whether I'm going to take it. So <laughs> this is the big announcement. We're going to announce Mad Mentions, the after show for Mad. <laughs> that's so funny. I saw you, I saw you at a party and uh, I was like, hey, are we going to do a Mad Men after show? And you go, no. <laughs> I was like, I know. I'm kidding. I uh, know. No, I, I know. They, I know they want to do it. Look, you know, they're fun. But I, I just I, I, don't, there's don't enough. Conver- there's enough conversation about the show. And we don't I, need we don't need to do it. It was a, a I mean, and I certainly I think. I think two after shows is more is enough that any one person should do. Yes, yes, and it's it's. Uh, I don't know. I I'm, I've resisted as much of that as I can, you know, to sort of just keep it within its world. Webisodes, all that other stuff. We just try to keep it pure on some level. I hadn't watched. Well, I, I I came on to Mad Men in the second season, um, and. Because I feel like I'm always behind on everything. Because there's I just, am too. You know, so someone was talking when I, by the third season, someone goes, "I just watched it," and I was like, "Really?" And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking like, "I am that person." <laughs> Everyone is telling me, "You got to watch, you got to watch, you got to watch," and you kind of want it to die down. I didn't watch Seinfeld till like season four. I didn't watch Friends until even later. Have you watched Mad Men? It's a good show. I have Mad Men. Okay, I've, Mad Men. I've kept the, up you with. Start the I started watching okay. right at the so pilot. You're an early yeah. yeah. But um, I. Because I remember seeing Ham around the, because he's kind of a comedy nerd, so he yeah. would hang out at the comedy shows, and I, sure. I knew him sort of casually, and I hadn't watched the show yet. And at that time, that was, you know, you guys were sort of doing for that section of cable, kind of what the early, I don't know if this is, if this, I hope you take this as a compliment, but like when Dream On came on on HBO, and it was like, right. oh, they're making like really good shows right. on what was otherwise a channel that just showed movies. No, no. I mean, it's a, it's a, it was a, it was a hard thing to even explain to people where we were, that we were not A and E, right? That um, AMC, I think, had already wasn't couldn't show like the same movies as Turner. They were some kind of lawsuit or something, mm-hmm. so they they didn't even have like the the super classic movies that they had. They had just switched to an ad format, um, which upset a lot of people. So there was a lot of stuff that was sort of like mixed into zero, and um, you know, I told. Charlie Collier, I was like, the success of the show, if people start saying AMC instead of A&E, then we really, really <laughs> nailed it. And they still do say A&E sometimes. But no, I mean, uh, I take that as a compliment. I think that the first thing I definitely got, you know, you get into these, HBO had sports and they had, you know, let's face it, HBO was really built on real sex. Mm-hmm. Um, but, Which, by uh, the way, not, you know, you, you could always get that titillation like, Oh, this is real people having sex. And you're like, real people having sex is horrifying. <laughs> no. Yeah. You're like, swingers? Oh, they look like that's not what I wanted. <laughs> Making hippies in the woods. <laughs> I know. I actually think that reality TV was a way to sort of um, get out of that, to get the best version of that. That they started casting these really, really, starting with Survivor maybe. Yeah. That you'd get these really, really attractive people. And they can't really learn lines. They can't really act a lot of times, these people. But you could put them in a situation. Real world. Would, yeah, real, exactly. Real, and real all of a sudden you're getting like that whatever that is that we love to see about them. And that was not the case on Real Sex. <laughs> not the case at all. You're like, this is not. Every one of these things was a, you know, every time you're like, wow, that's interesting. You're like, I don't want to do that. That guy just put a pacifier in his butthole. <laughs> I don't even see this. Though, you know, I, yeah. We like to swing and you're like, you do? What about the other people? Oh, they're not going to do it. <laughs> We we like to swing. That's all I need to hear. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch something else. And we put a barbecue pit in the middle. Oh no, the oil guy. But um, no, the um, yeah. I mean, I think it did. That was the intention. 
I think that they had, from some business reason, they had maximized, you know, the 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 growth of the company, and that they realized original programming was a way to start attracting advertisers and get attention. And they made one pilot. I don't think they even knew what had happened. You know, they made HBO made you know eleven, twelve networks made thirty, forty. Yeah. Sometimes you know, talking about hundreds of millions of dollars being into this pilot process, and they made one. And they said, we'll see if we try it, you know, and it, all of a sudden we had an audience on the channel. Well, so what well, – And it coincided with a lot of technological stuff went on. Like right away, it was the first place I worked where I couldn't tell people what the number was of the channel. Oh, right. And it was just starting to become this interface that whether – even if it wasn't TiVo-based or anything else like that where people could like search for the show. Right. And that was like a big transition for the audience that I don't think people realize. It was a big transition to go from like, oh, you're on – HBO, there was one HBO, you know, you're on HBO, you're on channel seven or you're on, what is it? 254, <laughs> but right. it's like 253 on some systems. And so it was yeah. HBO West and then exactly, HBO exactly. And so HBO. that kind of anything where now people don't even keep track of that. They just know like, you know, they've got their basic cable the package and then there's like 900 VOD channels and then they get to HBO's. Well, I, so I started watching in the I, I went back and watched the first season when the second season, right before the second season started, and was immediately blown. Like, holy shit! I mean, because I, I think part of it was you go in again, not knowing what AMC was at that time, thinking right. American movie classics, and then seeing this show that's um, not only just gorgeous, but but so well written and 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 I, and then I the next time I saw Ham, like I I I had a totally different. I was like, oh my god, your show is <laughs> it's fucking amazing. Like I was. Did you uh, lie to him the first time though and say it was like, hey, it's really good? And then the second time you hadn't seen. No, 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 no. I was oh, honest. With I've you. Done, I've been caught with that too. I'm like, hey, was, really nice to meet you. I'm a big fan. And then all of a sudden you're like, I met that guy and I hadn't <laughs> seen it and I lied. I would have gushed. Well, you're waiting. You're waiting for someone to be like, oh, really? What's your favorite episode? The, <laughs> the one where you overcome the thing. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing about the show that's very complimentary. That's a, that's a very nice thing to say. Uh, but it is a thing, the show in particular was so peculiar that I could really tell um, if people had seen it because it's really, for whatever reason or other, very, very different and still is very different than a lot of other things. I just still don't know what the genre is. I still don't know a lot of things about it. But I always look at it and I, I feel like, you know, it's not for everybody, but I think that it was, especially at that time, so incredibly different. And I praise them still AMC for taking a risk to do something different. And that was their, that was their business strategy. And a lot of the show in the first few years, the business stories are about AMC and Lionsgate and them sort of dealing with it and how to deal with things. Yeah. I mean, because it, it, I mean, not only did the show blow up as a show, but also, I mean, you could see how within a couple of seasons, how much like, Don Draper aesthetic had had permeated our culture. It's so weird. And it, I, it took me a while to actually notice I'm wearing that. A fucking skinny tie right now. <laughs> that was that very, was not happening before like oh seven. The best thing is I had. Well, I always figured. I, I I always said like we will know the show is a success if next Halloween someone is walking down Santa Monica Boulevard dressed as Joan. Mm-hmm. That was my only thing. I was like that will measure the success. <laughs> um, but there is a certain point where you start, it starts coming back to you and you're like, well, what's going on? And I went into Brooks brothers to, to get a suit and somehow it came out what I did. And, um, I had all my kids with me, um, all my boys with me. And there was like, that, that's, that's nine times out of 10 where they ask you what you did, where you do, mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what, what is it that you do? And I told him and he goes, you know what? I ha-, he shook my hand. And he goes, I have to thank you before that show came on. 
I don't think I've worked here for 11 years. I never had a guy under 30 come in and buy a tie. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> they had to blow Sorry. down the. <laughs> exactly. Like who's going to casual Friday, all that sort of stuff. But there was also this, you know, I don't know. If, I mean, obviously I'm sure people know this, but there was a, there was a subtle comedic undertone of the first season, which was pregnant women smoking and yeah. people drink and like every time you'd see it, it'd be like Jesus Christ you know? <laughs> and there was something there was just something inherently funny about what the, about about capturing that that slice of what the culture was the, like the sort of blissful ignorance about things exactly. I mean, yeah there was a line in one of the early episodes where Francine who's Betty's pregnant friend they're at the derby party and she's like having her fourth cocktail and she goes I don't know what it is I am so thirsty <laughs> super pregnant <laughs> yeah you're like well you know maybe you shouldn't have had that fifth uh, mint julep but it's all, and it's also a period but I mean there's a sort of I mean I didn't want to do too much of like look how smart we are or anything the weird thing to me is there's a lot of stuff that was really true that we were capturing about the way things were that people would sort of argue about like people smoking inside, depending on their age, or you know, seatbelts and uh, car carriers and kid, you know, all this sort of stuff that's part of our culture now. That you look back on it, and you're there's a few winky ones, but I basically try to make not the show try to make the show not wink at things. I think the one that I hear the most about is in the second season. They go on a picnic and they get up and they throw all their they just leave all their trash. <laughs> and it was actually something I was raised with and it was hard to explain to people, you know, that it's just the way it was and and uh it was hard to even explain to the actors like don't look back. Just leave the trash there. The world is a big place. So it was so what We would just throw stuff out the way. I mean, I can't even explain it to you. I don't remember my grandfather was a little bit more um uh, I would not say eco-conscious because he drove a Buick Electra 225, which was a giant car. But he did have a bag filled with trash. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would put the trash in there and he would empty it out. But everyone – and he would be mad at you for throwing stuff out. But I mean tickets for littering. You, he literally had to like throw a sofa on the side of the road <laughs> to, get, to get it. Was it a culture of – do you think we were a culture of ignorance or just like a culture of, of denial? Um, like not looking back like, no, yeah, it's fine. Someone will get it. I actually think that people didn't see it. I think it's one of these things like when you move and you, you put the p- paintings against the wall, the pictures against the wall and the boxes, and then you live there for two years and you don't see it. People just didn't see how much garbage there was. When, I, when, I, when we try to recreate street scenes a lot, the amount of trash we have to put on – in New York is cleaner than it was. I can't even explain it to you. Watch a movie from the, from the decayed part of New York, like from the mid-70s, right. like uh, the 7-Ups or mm-hmm. – uh, French Connection, like in that era, and you will just see like rotting. You'll see graffiti on things that is like so thick you can't even tell what they are. You will see just trash piling up everywhere, and this is a lot of it's before garbage bags, so it's like pails. And mm-hmm. I just think it was a, um, I think it accumulated all at once is what happened. I think it was going on for a while in in ignorance. That's a big place. And then it accumulated all at once, and all of a sudden, everyone's like, "Well, why does it have to be this way?" And of course, the, you know, the crying Indian was like a was was an ad that was a big, a big. Do you remember the Indian of with the tears? So yeah, that the was can, a, the can, like yeah, lands right at his feet. Yeah, that ironized Cody. That's sort of like a big moment where they. But part of what I was interested in when I started the show is that all these things started in the early '60s, right when the show started. This sort of consciousness about it, and I think in 1960 or maybe a little bit before, after that, Rachel Carson wrote the Silent Spring, which was the the first sort of uh, eco book that wasn't 
just celebrating nature was saying that we had destroyed everything and that we were poisoning the water. And it became, as you got into the seventies, it became an ecology movement, green movement, whatever, you know, now we have, now it's a big business, which I think is what saved us. I wonder if part of the reason the Native American was crying because uh, we took all his fucking land. (laughs) (laughs) He had many reasons. Standing on the highway. This is what you're doing? He's actually crying about the fact that there's a highway going through with a bunch of Thunderbirds driving on it. It used to be his front yard. (laughs) It was a beautiful, unobstructed view of the landscape. Um, But why... So what was it about AMC? Coming off The Sopranos, I would imagine you could probably pretty much... You probably had some options, I would imagine. I, I, I... think I would have had some options. I never went that far. Um, I definitely, my agents told me that I would have some, some options as they do. I wanted the, the Mad Men pilot script was something that I had written that had gotten me my job on the Sopranos and I wanted to make the show. And the entire time I was at the Sopranos, I tried to get HBO interested in it through David Chase. Mm-hmm. Who, and there was no, I don't even know when they read it or didn't. And this is not just criticism. It's just, I, I never had that job of having to pick stuff, but they didn't. And so I just kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, and nobody else really wanted to do it. And AMC, uh, Christina Wayne, and um, uh, and you know, and also material gets sort of uh, poisoned at a certain point the longer it's around. Like right. if everybody reads it and it oh, doesn't that happen, Mad Men scripts floating around. Yeah, and I mean, it was a period piece. I didn't think it was like losing its relevance in any way. But um, uh, when it got me my job on the sopranos a lot of people read it and i had a lot of meetings and they would say things to me like this is a great piece of writing which was very complimentary they got me in for the meeting but what do you really want to do we're never going to make this show (laughs) do you obviously do you watch tv whatever and so amc expressing interest in it it wasn't like a bidding war or anything and in fact they made the pilot by themselves the way it usually works in tv is that the channel finds a studio to produce right. it and they couldn't get anyone to do it. So they wow. paid for it themselves. And then afterwards got Lionsgate to, which is a big risk. And Lionsgate then came in and bought the show. I think it was, I think it, I actually think it worked out. Obviously it worked out for the best, but I'm, I'm having a difficult time picturing it on HBO because on HBO, you wouldn't really have any content boundaries. And I think what's yeah, I nice. Always, I always wonder about that. Yeah. Know? Cause obviously there would be, there would be nudity and you'd see like, but you know, I assumed that I wouldn't have any content boundaries when I wrote it. I did think it was going to be on HBO. Um, and uh, I found that immediately that it was really helpful. And as the 60s have gone progressed in the show, I have pushed a little bit more with language and things like that because I think it's part of the story. Mm-hmm. But I always like, I mean, I don't know, shooting sex scenes and 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 the 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 all of the things that are I, I like the moment before and the moment after dramatically and we have pushed it a little bit and there are certain things that were very very um i mean you know basic cable has certain rules but amc actually has more stringent rules than than fx so we are tv mature not tv 14 mm-hmm. so you know the language is controlled you can't say you know jesus christ unless jesus christ is actually there you can mm-hmm. say jesus and you can say christ right um, and there's more things that I could go into. They, they sent us an email with a bunch of words that we couldn't use, four words that we couldn't use. What are they? And, um, uh, they weren't the only ones, it turned out, by the way. Um, but it was, it's what you expect it would be. It was pretty, pretty clear. It was Just like, the- fuck. It wasn't shit. It was like, fuck, cunt, the N-word. Mm-hmm. And I think there was one other sex-related word. But they, they weren't the only words. We started hearing about them all the time. But in the end, I kind of found that working around all of that, um, it, 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 it was a uh, – I mean, 
there's plenty of swearing going on. Then yeah. those guys had all been in the military, but there wasn't as much swearing in social situations, especially in the workplace. And um, so I felt that the sort of like artificiality of it, like helped me challenge me to to write in a you know people are saying fuck you to each other all the time in a right. million different ways. And so, um, but Pete does say fuck you in the pilot to Don, and we just dipped it. Well, yeah, because you definitely you you definitely want to be able to use words that are indicative of the time and not, you know, and of course, and of course, their challenge is like, yeah, but audiences are contemporary, even though this is a period. You know what their challenge is, is that they actually have um, regulations and standards and practices about what can be said and what can't be said. And you try and adhere to them, the specifics of which are often embarrassing. And, you know, at a certain point. You know, we're like, you can show someone smoking a joint, but they can't inhale it. And then they've got Breaking Bad on the other channel, you know, where they're actually cooking meth on the, <laughs> on the other state. And I was like, and, you know, and they were using me against Vince for sex and, and Vince against me for drugs. And you sort of had this thing where, like, we're going to have to find a kind of medium in here that is realistic. We will not, you know, overdo it. And mm-hmm. we will suggest things. And I think most of what happens, um, because the sex is very important in the show. And it's a big part of the storytelling. Don's a carnal guy. And I like the sort of implied nature of it. And I know that you can watch it with kids. And if they don't fall asleep, they will have no idea what's going on. Is, is, he, a, <laughs> is, he, is he a textbook narcissist? Is that his problem? Do Don? You think? Yeah. Uh, no. No. It's, it's, uh, I don't know how to analyze what it is. I think at this point, enough experts have told me what they think is wrong with him. He's what you call a very successful person. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> uh, and I think he probably suffers from detachment, uh, attachment disorder, which, uh, is not narcissism. Betty's more of a narcissist. Okay. Don is a, is a person who actually is observing humanity a little bit, has very low self-esteem, uh, medicates with, with, with sex and with uh, alcohol and, and medication when he can sure. get his hands on it. And I think his functioning is um, he's, a, he's an empathic person who has feelings for other people, but he's also kind of mystifi- mystified by attachment itself. Oh, you're right. He couldn't possibly be a narcissist because he really cared for the woman whose uh, husband's identity that he took over. He, he uh, yeah, I mean, a narcissism is like a very complicated word for me because to now, now it just means egotism. But when, no, it's, be, it's like, like Betty, no, like no empathy for anyone else. I think the Betty's thing is like Betty is so filled with feelings that her, I look at narcissism as like her thing is, is that no one is as good as her. <laughs> and she's always got these expectations of like behavior and she dwells on it. And she, she's a little bit of a borderline personality to get more specific. But, you know, when you're, when you're, um, when you're writing characters, I don't really judge them. Sure. You can't. No, I, I, A, I'm, it just. I don't question their behavior even down to what's good and bad. I try to make it situational, and I think that that's part of the problem. And is you have to help. Is that, is that our, our, our behavior is situational. And you have to help, in the writing, help justify. You have, I, I feel like you're always dropping clues for here's, here are possible explanations for why these people are the way that they are. I think there's a cause and effect, and I think you carry your, your problems around you. And I think that a lot of the things that we see as their like, bad behavior are symptoms, right? not not the diseases. You and, know? and this was definitely, this was also a period of time where it was, even though there is some, there is some therapy in, there is a little bit of therapy in the show, but it was a time when people didn't talk about that stuff and they well, just Well, men didn't, men didn't. 
right. men did not talk about it. There is a huge wave of psychoanalysis in, in the 50s uh, for, for Americans. It's bigger here than almost anywhere in the world. Freud was like, I don't like what they're doing there with what I wanted to do. He, in the 30s, you know, when he, when he visited America, he was like, this is not what I meant. It was so in style in the, in the, in the fifties into the sixties. And then it became a huge part of the culture, but it was, Don said, it was not polite to talk about yourself. And for men, especially like you don't see the word depressed. We didn't use the word depressed in the show because people didn't use it. Men, especially I'm depressed. They would just say, you know, depression, depression was like an economic term. Mm -hmm. They'd be like, I'm blue or, you know, emotional, the or emotional not drunk enough, not drunk enough. <laughs> <laughs> the emotional complexity for men, uh, is, is like, unless you're, you know, a writer, it's just not, um, it's not addressed. And that's why I think not being on HBO and having those constraints to help me construct something that was a little bit more subtle. Let me ask you a really annoying question, which is, do you think that, do you think that there are shades of Don and Tony Soprano that are <clears throat> cut from the same cloth? But obviously because Tony was in a different – he was in a different cultural uh, period that he was able to start trying to deal with the kind of weird uh, you know, anxiety, depression, emptiness that he felt. I think um, it is embarrassing for someone to have a psychological problem. Tony has like panic you know, attacks and Don has had a couple of panic attacks. I don't know. I mean – any comparison between those two characters is like completely flattering to me. They were actually created around the same – not created, but I, I had not seen The Sopranos when I started writing the pilot. And then I saw it and I was like, well, Don's like Tony, but he doesn't kill people. <laughs> so I thought – I like the charm. <laughs> and he works on a cigarette account. But um, uh, so um, – but uh, I – you know – Tony is um, probably has a little bit more self pity. He's just a modern person, and Tony is so much more powerful than Don. Yeah, I mean, I always loved this dichotomy on The Sopranos. This is what held the whole show for me together. You know, before I worked there, which is that this guy could kill anybody he wanted, sleep with anybody he wanted, do you know all these different things, and when he got home, he had absolutely no power. Right, and I think Don is more removed. I mean, when we were, const when I, when we, when I was selling the pilot, they kept saying to me, where, where's this Melfi? Who's he going to talk to? And I was like, they didn't talk to, they didn't talk to anybody. Right. That's who these guys are. They're he not talking to his wife. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't talk. Yeah. He didn't tell his wife where, who his parents were. Um, yeah, that's just not part of it. You just sort of sucked it up and live with it, but there is a psychic cost. And I think that as you start to write a character, you know, now 92 hours, you start, looking for reasons and trying to construct, you know, the, 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 the substance of who they are. But I discovered a lot of that. I just used to go with the behavior of what I thought he would do. And there, he's sort of basically based on an American character type from literature and it's, you know, and from reality. I'd read these biographies of like Sam Walton and Lee Iacocca and a lot of the people who had shaped the 20th century and they had these like rural poverty backgrounds or Lee Iacocca's place, urban poverty that they had just completely obscured this shameful, you know, poverty is very shameful um, uh, um, for, for the people in it. You just don't get over it. And they had sort of lied about who they were and then got there. And maybe they would get to a point where they would talk about how poor they were when they were kids but for the, and how they were self-made. But they would read those Horatio Alger books and be affected by them. But they are not Horatio Alger characters. They got a lot darker past to them. And I just felt Don – I had this experience at a job where there was a guy who worked there with us who kept talking about Harvard. And finally – and this is, this is before 
the internet was quite so readily available. It was there, but nobody really knew how to use it or had the time to sign on. And someone found out that this guy had not gone to Harvard. Oh. Yeah, and there was like a big sort of casual showdown between a couple of people where somebody sort of dropped it. And he didn't really react. He like sort of blushed and he's like, I don't, you know, I, I don't know that I ever said I did go, which was not true. We talked about it all the time. <laughs> and then finally, the, everyone just went on. Nobody gave a shit. Right. And I was like, this is America. It yeah. does. I mean, good for him for knowing that dropping that name would be take, you know, he lived in fear, I guess, that he'd be caught. But it didn't matter in the end. And that was kind of a lesson for me about how we are about success it kind of doesn't matter if you fit the form and don looks like that person he's aspired to become that guy that he read about in magazines he's good looking so that helped him but he really is a constructed person and you know just to get back to the psychology thing there's this incredible case study written about marilyn monroe and when i was reading it it felt the most like the personality of Don Draper of anything that, I, really? that I've read. Yeah. Just the difference between Norman Jean and, and yeah, just the, will anyone ever really know me now that I've invented this person? And do they Can want anyone, to be known? They kind of do at a certain point when they get there, they want to be known, they want to be loved, but they can't really get that close. And at the same time, they don't want to be known. Absolutely. Like, do you want people to know? Because it's so, it's so, it must be really scary to think that everyone loves this other identity. Exactly. And also the idea that, you know, I find that we place so much of our self-esteem into other things, but how powerful to place your self-esteem into a completely other being that is, like, it's interesting you say that you feel like he's removed because it's almost like, it's almost like an actor... Being able to take on a character, but not I'm like those traits are in there I've, somewhere. I have had this, and I mean, I, I like to put roles for actors that I think are within the phys- physical realm of their experience. You know, I don't like people putting on accents, and I sort of you get a kind of a vibe about people, especially the longer you work with them and try and write for that. But you know, I had a I had someone you know in an audition. I said, "Can you just use more of yourself?" And it was someone I'd known for a long time, and he, and he said, Matt, like, the reason I'm an actor is I don't know what that is. Right. <laughs> it's like an incredible skill to have that mutability. And at the same time, there's maybe there's a lack of substance that the rest of us associate with. I, I know for writers, and there's plenty of personality for writers, but there's definitely a lot of observation going on, a lot of imitative behavior, a lot of, you know, just seeing how other people behave when they're natural. Mm-hmm. And you, what you see is a lot of contradictions, a lot of like self-interest, a lot of, you know, the things that, that most comedy comes from, you know, yeah. like, you know what I hate? I hate people who drink so much. Give me another beer. Like something that simple. You will hear that all the time. I remember talking about being on a, on a sitcom and saying that, and someone was saying that this joke was a cliche. And uh, it was a joke like that, like, I want another beer. And, you know, I hate people who drink. And the guy's like having his fifth drink. And someone walks in and he said, I, I have this on my phone. I have recorded this. And it's a conversation with his, his agent. And he said, and the agent says something like, I was talking to Arnold Schwarzenegger this morning. And I was saying, people who name drop are assholes. <laughs> and there it was. We're like, I was like, there, you know, it's you can't a, argue with that. It's it a happens thing that happens constantly. It's a thing that happens. Yeah. I am, uh, <laughs> I'm kind of interested in the, the idea that as characters, Tony Soprano and Don Draper both have seemingly what, you know, 
every man's dream would be. They got all the I money know. and they can fuck anybody they want. Right, and they're right. powerful and they got. And Tony and can kill can, people. He can kill people, but he can't kill everybody. He can't kill everybody, but he can kill a lot of people. But it, it was a, a realization as the show went on. You know, David was really great about this when when Bobby. Bach, spoiler alert! But when when Tony's brother-in-law got in his way, you're like and embarrassed him during the Monopoly game. You're like. He can't kill his brother-in-law. He can't. He can't do it. Tony's like, he's just, it's just that's not, not possible. But these guys have all these things that you think that they're trying to fill this hole with, and, uh, and they're still incredibly unhappy. Like, they have uh, everything, yeah. and they still... I know. You don't want it to be... I know I always thought that about Big Love. I was, like, watching this, and I said, I guess this is supposed to suggest that a man who's married to five different women is going to be unhappy. Right, right. You know what I mean? And you're like, I guess that, that there's sort of like this, these, there's, there's a negative in it. I don't want it to be a moral statement of like, hey, guess what? You can't have it all. But I think that Don and, uh, you know, Tony is a, is a bit of a miserable anyway. And what I start to realize is that maybe the guys who have that unhappiness, that that's, whether it's on Pete Campbell's side or Don's side, that that is the thing that makes them, that gets them to the place where they can do so much. It's because they are so incredibly unsatisfied and because they are lacking in so many other qualities that they just push for it. Well, yeah, and I don't think it's, I mean, all the things that they have, I don't think, uh, those are neutral things. Like, right. it doesn't, you know, the, the money and the sex. Been, I was mystified when the show came on that he was such a, um, that people wanted to be like him. <laughs> I mean, we kept saying it on the showing that he wasn't like that. Well, you know, you know they, I, it's, <laughs> that he's like that in public. They wanted to have the things that he has. They don't. I don't think they. I don't think anyone wants to be like di- like because it's basically he. There is this like unfillable void that no matter how much he throws in right. is never going to make him feel even. He never never feels even, and right. so he never feels stable fully. And he's constantly trying. He's constantly searching. I think for people that. identify with that. I think it's actually a comfort to say, "Oh, that guy looks like that and has all that, and he still feels that way." I think a lot of the audience that watches the show feels that way. Well, not only that, but I think they also like feeling that that in 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 the in the Mad Men universe, um, to everyone else, he he's perfect, right? And and he has a perfect life and a per, you know perfect f- sort of a family, right? But but that people watching. It kind of makes him feel like nobody's perfect. Like that right. guy, like he's one of them. He's the most fucked up character on the show, and it's like right. everyone else. He seems perfect, so there it makes is, them feel good. Uh, yeah, there is a superiority complex for the audience. It's been it's been interesting to me to learn all of these things because I approach it all from the inside. I'm telling a story. There's not a lot of philosophy in it. I work with a bunch of very talented writers to like create a story that is entertaining. That you're not going to know what it is. There are motivations for things, and the problems are super small. Right? They're like somebody got more than I did. Or why can't I get that and everybody else can? Or what you know right. what I mean? They're like there's very small sort of stories. I mean, Don has a particularly dramatic story, but it's still the confrontations are on a tiny scale. You know, the the climax of the, of the last season, the great moment, is he comes home and he missed going for Thanksgiving with his family. We know that it's emotionally devastating, but I mean, he'll see them. You know, <laughs> um, so. With stakes that are familiar to people that don't involve, you know, I got to kill somebody by five o'clock or I'm going to get murdered or whatever, which not that I don't like those kind of stories. But when the stakes are like that, I started sort of understanding like what the audience liked and didn't like. And it was always a surprise to me. You know, I was mystified by, you know, I'm not saying Betty Draper is a great mother, but, you know, I started having my own theories about people were very hard on Betty Draper. And I was like, she is being 
treated very badly by her husband. It's She's a really devoted wife, and she's faithful, and she is raising his kids, and he is not a good husband. Right. And no one ever took her side. And he's not a great dad, by the way, you know? Right. So, um, and I was always like, well, I wonder if she was less attractive, if they would feel sorry for her. I mean, I always wondered what it was. And now we've had 92 episodes to sort of explore that. But there is a superiority thing that there's sometimes it's satisfying to say, like, I know more than her, or I know where the story's going, or I know whatever else it is. And I try and, I just try not to think about it and approach it from the other side. I'm going to tell you a story. It's not the style of every story because you don't know what's going to happen. And... And you got to give yourself over to that. And sometimes it means being maybe made to feel a little foolish if you don't see something coming. And for me, I like, I love that. It's what I love about the Soprano. You know, you're like, oh my God, of course that's what happened. It was inevitable, but I never saw that coming. Well, there are also, there are also uh, subconscious uh, mechanisms at play in your brain and you're expressing things that you probably don't realize that you're expressing. And when they all come out yeah. then you're like, Oh shit, that actually connects to this. <laughs> and you may think it's an accident, but it's probably your brain was squeezing something out. There is a lot of stuff. There is a lot of stuff like that where you're like, I cannot believe this was obviously on my mind. What? And can you think of any, uh, it's mostly embarrassing. You know, I, I can tell you that, you know, just from last season alone, I, I didn't know that Don and Megan's marriage was over. <laughs> I didn't know. I thought, well, you know, they got a long-distance situation, and they are married, and he's being faithful, and he's being sober. And, yeah, he lied to her about not having a job, but he's going to hang in there. And and I didn't know that it was going as badly, even after after the threesome. And finally, one of the writers was like, you know— they had like elected someone to let me know that it was over. <laughs> no, so it like, can't be. Well, you know what? Honestly, he could take it. You know, look, some people are raised by people in a marriage like that. It right. could go on forever, but that it had exhausted its its you know lifespan was you know. I didn't know that that you know. I don't know. There's a there's a there's stuff that's on my mind sometimes about. Uh, you know, the cool thing is, is that you can take an idea that you can't put into words and put it in the show. And even though there's a lot of conversation and people writing about it, that's the thing that's the most satisfying when you talk about your subconscious is that you'll do, we've done episodes that are about a feeling. And I don't know that people, people who are in, watching it in serial and like, well, how is this advancing the story for the season? They may not grasp onto it. But then after it passes, it sticks with you and you go back and look at it and you sort of see, okay, Don and Sylvia locked in a hotel room together. This is about a man who's powerless and about a married woman who's being ignored by her husband. And she's having the fantasy of living in a harem and he's having the fantasy of having complete control over another person. And at a certain point, she says, I don't want to have an affair anymore. I had a dream that, 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 and I realized I was ashamed of cheating on my husband and it's over. And Don says, please, you know? And you're like, I think what I'm saying is Dawn could take it or, or leave her until she said no. Right. That is was not like a, you know, calculated thing. It was just like, what's the next step? What does he need right now? What does she need right now? And then you're in and you get the next episode and he's obsessed with her. 
because <laughs> he can't let go. Yeah, because it's, it's and because she said no. She said no to him, and then now it's not. Now it's that he's not familiar with that territory. It's and so not even real. So it activates. It must activate all that all the stuff that's really down deep of like, oh, oh I'm, I have low self esteem. I'm not good enough. What did I like? We did gonna- the next episode when they all took speed, and you saw that he had been interested in a that he lost his virginity to a woman who looked exactly like her. That's something that's embarrassing, by the way. My casting people, everyone in the world knows that there is a kind of woman that Don, quote, likes a type. And I did not know that. But I have cast, at this point, like 11 of them. (laughs) (laughs) And they're all different flavors of the same kind of woman. And Betty is not one of them. But all the other ones are very – these actresses are like a long line. Even Cara Bono, who is Dr. Faye, is a natural brunette. They all have a sort of – Quality. I think I cast by voice, but um, you know, we'll, see, we'll get a Don Draper type. The casting, Carrie Audino said to me at one point, at like season four, and I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> I've been casting all different kinds of actresses. I'm very proud of that fact that they're all different ages and you know, different backgrounds, different ethnicities. You know, how could you say Bobby Barrett and you know, and and Suzanne the teacher are like the same type, and it turns out that they kind of are. <laughs> <laughs> does it? Do you feel any more? <clears throat> excuse me. Pro, that's all right. Do you feel any more? Does it, does it change the way you approach the show emotionally once the show becomes a hit and everyone knows about it, and you're getting paid more, and there seem to be more eyes on it? Do, do you feel like, oh fuck, I really better focus, or is it just like, are you pretty zen about that? Um, I've never um, absorbed it. I'm actually kind of absorbing it now that it's over. Now that it's done. Yeah, I share that with Dawn, I guess. Um, I always felt pressure every episode and every season. Like, what am I going to do? I'm out of stuff. What is the next stage in this guy's life? And when I knew after after we signed a contract that I would have 36 more episodes, it was freeing, but it was also kind of like I'm always like – on my knees to the audience in some way. It may not seem that way. And I know that people think that like, oh, you're like denying us this and it's a slow burn and you're playing with us. And I, I am always trying to please them in some way. Um, I definitely feel felt, um, I felt the pressure from the beginning, even when no one was watching it. I really always felt like uh, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be embarrassed by it. I always sort of took everything down to the audience that I could that I could really get a response from. I really care what my wife thought, what my writers thought, and what my actors thought. Mm-hmm. And that, like, I really didn't want to be. That's the pressure. It's like we're coming back for season six. Yeah, everybody's glad to be back to work, but, like, are we going to – and is this the season where it's just going to, like, go to hell or I'm, like, lost my mind? Or And the great thing is when you sort of commit to not repeating yourself, I would always sort of mentally – Say, like, you get asked by a reporter, like, you know, what are you going to do next season? How are you going to raise the bar or whatever? And I was like sort of – I don't think that way, probably because of terror. Instead of going up a notch, what you would perceive that, I will just go over here. I'm just going to a new place. It won't be measured by that. You know, maybe you don't like it as much as the story of the season before, but it's a totally different story, and I'm not being measured by anything except for this is the next phase in their life. And what's been interesting is to – get closer to Don and to actually keep track of the progress because we never forget what's happened. So you get at the end of season six and Don 
after being caught by his daughter, having an affair. I mean, it's a real low point. I was trying to tell the story of 1968, but the, and Don, Don had a bad year. Mm-hmm. He really, all these things we're talking about, it's his, like, his impulses, everything that we'd seen shades of was turned up a notch. And so he has this moment of reconciliation with his daughter, and you're like, has the guy changed? You know, is he getting older? Should I acknowledge that? You know, you take a risk... In season four, when Don got divorced, I kind of like had this big struggle. Like, am I going to say to the audience that he's an alcoholic? Half the fun of the show is seeing him drink with impunity and right. drive drunk and do all this, and you know, and like misbehave. And all of a sudden, you're seeing Don drunker than ever. Yeah, and like sleeping with two women in the same night that he doesn't know their names, and stealing an idea, and sleeping with his secretary, and all these like really, really bad self-destructive behavior. And I was like, I hope I don't take the fun out of the show, but let's face it, the guy's got a drinking problem. Well, and 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 if you are if you are fo- if you're following cause and effect, you know, I, I'm sure that happened to a lot. Well, it happens to people all the time, but I mean, particularly in that period where it was like everyone do drugs, everyone every, like everything's right. fine, everyone everyone fuck everyone, right? You know, that at a certain point, like. All those checks that they were writing, like that's going to start to take a toll over over the years, especially as you I, get older. I yeah, I mean that's the thing is, are you going to acknowledge that the guy's moving on in his life? Has he learned anything? Right. And you know, I'm only a little bit older than Don, and it's mostly because it took seven years to get the show on the air. I was <laughs> the same age as Don when I wrote the pilot, and I sort of look at it and I, you know, you hate to think of yourself as a statistic or something, but the the passages of his life are pretty much the way it goes and when he right after he turned four i mean everyone who had ever had a second marriage came up to me (laughs) Uh, i mean anyone who came up to me i should say that anyone who had had a second marriage who came up to me would be like oh my god that was my second wife oh wow that was it i really i just want to be with someone who saw me the way i wanted to be seen and she's probably too young for me and it didn't solve the problem but you know i recognized her and I recognized the the idealism with which he went into that relationship. So you sort of start looking at the passages in your life, you know, and you get a certain point where, you know, you, all of a sudden your childhood is living with you all the time. You're like, why am I thinking about my childhood all the time? I, I, I'm not someone who dwells on that or lives with it. And then I kind of, I put it to bed, but I, I used all that for Dawn and so do the writers. You know, we have writers of all different ages on the show, which really helps, but um, I think that, Part of the, the the fun of the show is because it's so many steps removed. It's period piece. It's third person. It's you know uh, Don Draper ain't my doppelganger. You right. know what I mean? It, no one looks at us and thinks I'm that that's me. And I get to sort of with all of these characters sort of investigate all the things that are on my mind. It's been it's been the gift of the show. I mean that's that's where the show comes from. Is whatever is on my mind get you know gets to be in the show i try to focus it into a story and it it does have this subconscious thing where you're like ah oh, that's what that is isn't that funny we just because we were just talking to grant morrison a couple days ago oh, really? who's a really phen- like he's a he is a an award winning comic book writer uh, and i, I know who the, he is believe it or not he said the he said the exact same thing he's like well when i'm writing batman if i'm dealing with like the death of my father like that comes if i'm yeah. dealing like that comes out absolutely and you and you really you understand that the you know that the best writers tend to put uh, humanity into the like there's some piece of themselves and that's how you that's how you kind of identify i think that that's that 
it's that intangible thing that when you're watching it, I said this to him too, it's just like, if you're reading his stuff, like, oh, there's something that feels authentic and I don't know why, but it just feels authentic. And it's because there, it's like, this is, these are real things that are this just being the, expressed. This was the lesson of The Sopranos. You know, people don't know the timeline, but I wrote that pilot right around when The Sopranos went on the air. It got me my job on The Sopranos a good two and a half years later. Then I wrote at The Sopranos for four and a half years and was rewritten thoroughly the entire time, right, going through these characters and these stories. And then we made the pilot, and then I wrote the second episode. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) And in that time, I realized that things that were on my mind that, you know, executives frequently say are too specific – were the things that spoke the most to people. Of course. And they were specific to me. And I don't even think it's just good writers. I think it's any writer. I don't even know how you get anything done if you're not using your own thing. It's the, what do you have to say about it, you know? My wife is great at reading a script and say, and I'm saying it's all about the feelings that you have when, you know, let's say, say something like schadenfreude, which is this great German word when something yeah. good happens to another person right. and it makes you upset. And, uh, or, or something bad happens to another you person. Get excited. Excuse me, you get excited about it. Um, and she says, yeah, but so, but what are you saying about it? You can't just like present it to us. And that's the, that's the challenge It's like, okay, so I've got this environment where I can recreate it. You know, um, so there, we had, we did an entire season that was all about success and we just did this half season, the first half of the season where, um, and money's big on the show, which isn't big on a lot of, in a lot of entertainment, but you know, it's a big part of our lives, you know, what we need, what we don't need, material objects, whatever. But we just did this season that was about Don like sucking it up and working his way up in his own company. Working his way back up in his own company. And the entire and and you know, making things right with Peggy. And making things right with his daughter to some degree and, and kind of doing the right thing in, in, not, in a less selfish, more sober way. The whole tension of the season, the thing that, that is keeping you on your edge of your seat is you just can't believe it's going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> you just think, when's he going to fuck it up? When's he gonna, when's it, what's his secret plan? When's he going to just like you know, whip it out and start killing people? You right. know? And that to me is like you know, exploring exploring. Those tiny things, you know, we did an episode called Maiden Form, which was the, the, in the second season that was all about how other people see you and the sort of like, which you can capture on film, you know, because you're, you can do POV shots sure. and things like that. And there was this people playing with their own image and it ended with Don looking in the mirror and just like, and his daughter talking to him and him not even be able to look, literally not look himself in the mirror because he's, he's so, such a liar. Right. And, and, um, you know, that's like a small private moment. I don't think that sounds like, that doesn't sound so action packed, but you know, the show has been a gift to be able to explore things like that. And it's like, like I said, it's not for everybody, but I'm proud of the fact that it has without any contrivance or effort maintained its weirdness because that's what we all wanted to do, you know? And the actors have always on board with it. They love it. They love the... They love the tension of waiting for the phone to ring, you know? Well, because everyone's character is, I mean, everyone's character has a lot of dimension because they're all, you know, to some degree, they're sort of playing off that, the idea that was contemporary for the time of, 
you know, and you know, and to some degree today too. Although people love to share everything about everything now, but yeah, but 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 the idea. But then you also wonder what's underneath it. Exactly, and it's so it's exploring all of the here's who they are to each other publicly in this environment that they're in, I and then they go on, home, and then I see this on Facebook where people write things that are so personal, and I'm thinking like, <laughs> okay, you're writing it, you're broadcasting it. What's What's underneath that? What's the weird shit that's underneath that? Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, because you know there there is this you know there there is this idea now that I, I think where we have to um, people need to be validated. I mean, it's all about validation, and so right. they'll, they'll give you a little bit of something that will that will you know you'll get attention or validation in some way. And I think that if they get that small piece of validation for whatever that nugget is, it somehow retroactively validates all the other bullshit underneath. They're like, oh, I'll just. I'll just get this one piece validated, and that'll take care of me for you know everything what? else. And this goes back to the superiority thing, because you have to really admit that you're in that validation state, which is really embarrassing. It is. And I think that so much of, like, just, let's take a concept like loneliness, which a lot of my work at this point has in it. It's something that I, I not, not only that I experience, uh, you know, it's, I'm not saying that it's like a lack of gratitude. I have four wonderful children. I have a wonderful wife. But it is part of the human experience. There are people who don't want to acknowledge its existence because it's too much for them. Sure. And they, you know, like Don, may start drinking to not feel that horrible feeling. Um, but uh, I am always kind of curious because I approach the show like, well, you know, we all feel this. And sometimes people are like, I don't. <laughs> and you're like, really? Maybe they don't. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Well, I mean, it almost doesn't matter if everyone feels that way. Yeah. As long as it's an authentic feeling that you have, I guess that's like, all that matters. But right, I think- You never think that your mom is nicer to your sister than you? <laughs> and they're like, no, we all get along. And I'm like, well, you must be the favorite. And they're like, no, my mom doesn't have any favorites. And I was like, I, I think I can't even really have this conversation <laughs> with you because I'll, I, I can't. Then there's nothing to write about. <laughs> well, also, I think there's something about there's something about your show that even in the opening credit sequence where it's a it's a particularly for that time where all of a sudden, you know, te- television and ads and like just the just the nature of the business that they work in. That people are being, and it's way worse today, but people's brains are being constantly inundated with um, image and data and things that they have to process over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And everyone... And it's all idealized. It's all idealized. So everyone has an identity crisis. Like everyone has a weird identity crisis versus, oh, these ads are an idealized version of who I should be. Here's the weird thing. Here's the weird thing that you bring this up because this period right now, and I just noticed this, is the most like the 50s in that. It is so, you cannot look at advertising and not feel bad about yourself. (laughs) And it's not always a good strategy for every image to be a perfect person for you to like, you know, have to read about like how if you're a woman, like you don't have a gap between your thighs or whatever it is. That's, That's not always a great sales technique. And part of what happened in the late 60s in the quote unquote creative revolution is that there was a more subversive element to advertising and a lot of it wasn't idealized and they were more real people on TV and sometimes to the point of grotesques and where's the beef is probably the end of it but the beginning of it is like that's a spicy meatball you start seeing ethnic people you start seeing like a Jewish sense of humor you start seeing these things that had not had completely not been part of it and we talked about this on the show that dad with the pipe and the convertible that we laugh at the leave it to beaver family we are constantly being inundated with that image right now of course and it's mo- well but more than i don't know if the people understand that 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 the photoshopped you know 
super sexualized mom, dad, you know, the fitness, the, the, the idealized family, even if it's multicultural, it is all so far from the reality that we live in that we live in this state of kind of self-hatred. Well, not and only, it's not a great way to sell shit. No, it's and, not and the best way. The other, the other dark side of it Although, is... I must be wrong because they keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but the other, the other dark side of it is, 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 com- is companies knowing, uh, obviously knowing that people are scared and insecure and anxious and depressed and, say, and basically in a passive-aggressive way, say, like creating a problem... That doesn't really exist, and going here's the problem, but we have the cure for this well, that's, problem. That's salesmanship. Yeah, I'm I, I'm I'm actually not, I I don't want to say no to that, but I'm not going to criticize that. I actually think that's okay. I think if you're smart enough to create a problem and have the solution, then it's you're, okay. You're probably either a manager in the entertainment business, or or you are uh, <laughs> or you are a, a good salesperson. What bothers me is the idea of like, um, there's a sales pitch that I've tried to to say that Don is above. It's kind of what the pilot's about, which is you're a piece of crap. And um, I used to feel that way, but I have this product mm-hmm. as opposed to this product makes me feel like the person I want to be. Right. And both of those are good sales techniques. And Don is aspirational. And most of the other stuff is negative. You, we talk about it, you know, with like uh, – there are there are there's a deodorant that strategy that is like I feel confident, I feel strong, I feel clean. That's what our product is uniquely suited for is to make you feel confident. And there's the other one is like, God, I smell horrible. People <laughs> smell horrible. What am I gonna do about it? And those 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 two things, I mean, it's uh it's, it's, you know, we, the funny thing is, is the advertising business was really in a crisis when we started the show, just cyclically, um, you know, just business-wise. They, the internet had come along. They didn't know what to do with it. You know, then the TiVo comes along. They don't even know what to do, how they're going to reach people. And they have rebounded in a way. And it has to do with our tolerance for it also. But they have rebounded in a way where we have a higher tolerance for advertising than ever before. And yes, we used to read the newspaper and there'd be ads sandwiched in between them, but now they go right on top of it. And no one has said, I won't read this or I won't buy this. No one has said anything about it. We are seeing – you're seeing more advertising by – I'm not a statistician, but you are seeing more advertising by the day than ever in the history of human behavior. And it's a lot of noise and a lot of people selling something, and I think a lot of it cancels itself out, and it becomes an incredible irritant, which is – part of the strategy on some level, but, um, getting your message embedded in some way that is palatable to people, it's like harder and harder and harder to do. So there's just like this technological bombardment, you know, look, I mean, just the sides of our buildings. It hasn't been like that since like the thirties. People expect it. I think that they kind of like it. I think they like the noise and the color and the activity. I think it's stimulating. (laughs) It was interesting to see a movie like her, and see this future world where there were all these screens and everything, and it was it was deeply absent of advertising, and it kind of like made it a little lonelier mm-hmm. actually. <laughs> when you look at, it, I mean, not that Blade Runner is like the future you want to live in, but like that's that's where we are right now. Right, like every eight billion screens, you know, constantly. You get in the back of a taxi in New York, and you're like. How do I turn this thing off? Oh no, I actually turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stop it. I just need someone to distract me from my brain. Exactly. But I, 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 
I really, uh, I, I think one of the most uh, beautifully simple things about the show is that the very thing that makes Don amazing at his job is actually his biggest character flaw, which is his ability to create an idealized version of something out of yeah. out of something that is shitty. I think that he won't won't actually make a shitty product shitty. That's not what he's trying to do, but I think that he – I was always interested in the creative process, and I don't even know if this really works in advertising or if it's just in our fictitious advertising world because it's rigged. I mean I, right. I write the clients and I, you know, I write whether the campaign's success. My whole thing was always like with the writers, like let's write a pitch that even if you don't know advertising is going to persuade you. Who knows if it's really going to work? Right. And really he just has to persuade the clients. And what I always liked was that it, he would take his personal life and use that as the problem and that his research is kind of emotional because he's an outsider and his flaw of like not having a past or not having a codified background allows him to sort of filter it, it into something else. And a lot of times the most negative qualities end up in these. But in the end, I think because he wants to be something else – He's always making the products part of one. Yeah, because he's basically else. he's basically a walking advertisement. <laughs> yeah, he's a walking advertisement the guy, for the person that he wants to be. The guy who sells in the Cadillac. You know, when we had a a, a, a um, freelance writer come in, and I had had one of these like magic moments on the way to work, where uh, an entire scene came to me, and I walked in and I like dictated it right away, and my assistant wrote it down, and then I like rewrote it, I typed it up, and I just handed it to the person who was writing the draft, and I'm like, put this in. This is Don selling the Cadillac. The, the Cadillac salesman. And the guy says to him, he's got this cheesy sales pitch. He's like, what do you, you know, I don't have to explain this to you. You're walking about in a Cadillac every day. Look at you. <laughs> and they're like, that's so gross. I'm like, Don loves this. He appreciates it. If nothing works better than to tell somebody that you are going to be the thing you always wanted to be if you use this product. Right. And, you know, I have to say almost all of his sales pitches come back down to that where he's like, it's where he's sort of saying, like, well, who do you want to be? And he knows who he wants to be. There's one, there was one line, there's one specific line in the show that, I, that always stuck with me. And when I saw it, and it was years ago when I saw it, I actually, I, I, I think I was alone. And I even said out loud, oh, fuck, which <laughs> is, which is, because it, it was, it was just something so powerful about this. It was right after Peggy has the baby. Right. And she's in the hospital, and Don basically says something to her like, "You will be. Sh- it will shock you yeah. how quickly you will get over this, or how yeah. much you'll forget." I can't remember yeah, what the exact. How much you forget it? How much you will forget this? And yeah. I, it just, it. I don't know why. It just. I. It, no one had ever. It never occurred to me before. And then you, and then you. You see so much about him, and then he's basically mentoring her in this weird, fucked up. Right, and it's not a great strategy no, for life, but it no. is a survivor strategy. It is, but, but it is that a survivor idea, strategy. That idea is so freaky. Like it will shock you, and you're like, oh my, because then you just start to go, oh my god, what am I capable of? Well, you know, you know what? You, you every once in a while, someone will come up to you, especially if you, you know, you're a famous person. I'm sure that you've seen people that you haven't seen for years, and they come up and tell you a story about yourself. And you are just overwhelmed with embarrassment. Has this ever happened to you? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And you're like, I that wasn't me. Like I, and you have blocked that out because you couldn't survive. I mean, we've all done terrible things. I mean, that's the show's based on the fact that I believe that. Right. So, you know, if you're above it, good for you. But I happen to believe that that if nothing else, things even if they're not that terrible, that we feel terrible about. 
and you do block them out. The funny thing is, is at the time I thought he is doing her a favor. He is giving her a gift to get over this thing and move on. But it is a terrible strategy for life. Right. Because it never goes away. It doesn't go away. And we can see that, you know, we're now 80 episodes from that episode. And you can see like, uh, you, you, you forget it, but it rears itself up all over the place. Shit you doesn't know? stay in Vegas. It comes it, home with you. Exactly. <laughs> That's totally, fantastic. No one's totally ever comes. put it that way. That's absolutely true. <laughs> it doesn't stay in yeah. Vegas. It may get home a little slower. I kept saying to people, like, we'd write these scenes, like, whenever Peggy still, you know, and I've had this confirmed from people who've gone through it, but it gets dumber, duller and duller. Anyone who's lost a loved one or whatever, it gets duller and duller. But it's like, you know, Peggy sees a child it's never nothing to her. Of course. It's never. She went through that pregnancy in denial, delivered that baby, put it up for adoption, had a psychotic break, basically, and then got back into life. It never it, it never went away. And she's gotten older, and maybe we're starting to see, you know, you have to watch the rest of the show and see what else there is for her. But um, I didn't realize it as much. I mean, that's embarrassing, too. I just thought, God, he's doing her a huge favor. Because I... <laughs> I, I admire survivors. I really do. I, I probably have my own survival skills, and a lot of it has to do with denial and forgetting and escaping into entertainment and sure. writing and making up my own version of things like a writer does. But, you know, um, when we did the Kennedy assassination, there was this moment in the room where everybody knew, like, Don's going to go to work. I mean, his wife left him. Like, during after the assassination, his wife basically said, I don't love you anymore. And he went into work, and Peggy was there too. And we're like, these guys are survivors. They're going to – he can comfort other people, but he's going to wake up tomorrow and just like put it out of his mind. He is, but all that <laughs> stuff, you know. No, it, I know. It, it, you know, like whenever you go through a tragedy or whenever you go through a, any kind of a lot, and you can mash it down for the time being, but sooner or later, you know, it, it starts to bubble up in other ways. And, and you may not even realize – that the two are connected, and then at a certain, and, and then at a some point, you know, um, but you, there are people. You think are, they're? I know there are. Well, those people are sociopaths. <laughs> um, a lot of them are in very great positions of power. They <laughs> because, really are because I mean, they're able to divorce themselves from. I the emotional think components. we, you know, uh, I think we depend on them to, you know, they have this study about like putting people in the army, and like there's like fifty percent of the population. It's like huge will crack up under combat situations. And then there's like 15%, another like, let's say 25% that will have trouble, but will do as told and might have scars afterwards. And then there's like something like, it goes all the way down to like 10% of the population that will do it and probably should only be in the military because they really have no problem with it at all. (laughs) And, you know, we, you know, you look at the war, it's part of the story of the show, drafting regular people, and putting regular people in that situation of having their life threatened and being away from home and being under fire and being forced to all of kill. a sudden, yeah, and then you like take them home afterwards. And they all shared it as a culture, but um, PTSD it wasn't it wasn't even a concept. They you know they, they they like developed that term very very late in the game. It's like from it's a while after World War Two. So um, I do believe, and maybe it is. Um, so I, look, you talk to a surgeon. I'm not a surgeon. I don't know how you could deal with having somebody's life in your hand all the time. All the time, yeah. I, I, I don't think and I could. And losing cut, lives. I, I, yeah, and losing lives. And I don't think I could cut someone up with a knife. We talked about this with Arnold. 
And Don sort of asks him about it, and he's like, I don't think about it. I don't have, that's why people pay me. I don't want to say it, but I don't think about it. Of course, I don't want to lose them. And it's horrible. And you want to, you want to beat it and you want to win and you want to use your skill and you want to cure and you want to heal. But I can't have that on my mind all the time or I couldn't operate. Well, I mean, your brain is essentially a closed circuit. So it, it, you know, I think there's a conservation of emotional energy where it's the energy is, is it, it can't be destroyed. It can transmute into other things that you maybe don't connect to that. But I don't, but I, I think it, it may come out somewhere else. All I know is that you can get up and perform in front of 30,000 people in a, in a sports stadium. And for most people, they would have a heart attack and die. (laughs) And you know, that's why we, you know, because I have a desperate need for attention, Matt. Like I, (laughs) I do too. Lots of people love attention. Go on Facebook. They don't, they, they're, they're taking the, they're taking the chicken's way out. Yeah. And you know, I remember meeting someone, um, cause I did stand up in college and I, I, I mean, I was physically like not capable of doing it. I would sort of survive it every time. And I imagine you can get used to it, but like I bombed once and then I was like, how am I ever going to do this again? And I met a guy who had no problems with it. He was not that funny. That was not his skill. And in fact, he eventually got people to write jokes for him like an old fashioned comedian and he did great. And I will not say who it is, but his skill was that he was not afraid of that. Mm -hmm. He was energized and focused by it. And I thought like, what a gift, you know, I'm energized and focused by deadlines, you know? Yeah. Uh, It's, it's, they're, they're, you know, different. And taking us back to sociopaths, I do think that there are people who can really put stuff out of their mind. I'm not saying it doesn't go anywhere. I'm not saying that they don't have a psychic scar, but I, you know what? It's funny. It was a great comfort to me. I was reading a book, this hilarious book about uh, the SS and they were saying <laughs> some light reading, some light reading. And, um, I was on vacation. Um, you know, you're in Hawaii. You want to read about the, uh, the SS. Sure. And they were talking about the amount of booze that they gave these guys. And I was totally comforted by the fact that they had to be drunk. Oh, that it wasn't just okay. that it wasn't just like right. a bunch of people who could who could shoot a that baby. were that could shoot a baby. Yeah, and they're like they don't see them as people. There's all kinds of rationalizations for how you get people to do it. war atrocities. Group. This is what it was about. Sort of like how how do you get a group to do this? Are they naturally bad or what? You know, they're different than you and me in some way. Would you behave that way? This is one of the big mysteries. Like, could you turn anybody into one of these guys? And you can't. But when I saw how much booze that they gave them, it was a comfort to me that they needed to drink and needed to not, that they knew that that was what they were doing was, it was a bad feeling that they wanted to get rid of. Right. Do you feel now that we're, um, now, now that the show's done, the, the last, the last handful of episodes are next year. Right? Yes. So, are, and I'm still editing it. You're so still editing. Done, but I am starting to talk about it in the past tense. It's interesting. Well, that it just, must, ha- it just happened like a couple you, of weeks ago. Do you feel, well, then you, you haven't even really processed it yet. I would imagine. I suppose that I will truly process it. Um, when the last episode airs, mm-hmm. but there, the ending production and seeing everybody sort of whittle away has been, has been a massive, massive change. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if I'll ever process it. I mean, one of the great things about making this movie is that I got to, you know, go out and do it and do something different and do a script that I cared about as much as Mad Men and finally get it done. And that it was like an escape hatch and you sort of start thinking about the future and what else you're going to do. But at the same time, like this is, 
I wrote the pilot 14 years ago. Jesus. It's a third of my, it took seven. This is anybody out there who is aspiring writer. Here's the, here's the happy, you know, it has a happy ending. But here's the story. <laughs> you can be patient. Yeah. Yeah. Seven years between writing the pilot and it going on the air. Mm-hmm. And now I've been on the air for seven years. So four, 14 years of your 14 life. years of my, it's a third of my life. Yeah. A little bit less. So you better like the shit you're writing because the best yeah. scenario is you're stuck with it. Well, that's the thing too, is that people tell you, you know, people, you know, this, you have this, you're so busy and you've your hands in so many places and you're developing all this. People are like, are you enjoying yourself? And you're kind of like, feel guilty about how much work you're doing and how much you're complaining and how tired you are and how busy you are and how much stress <laughs> you have. But you are, that's the part that I've processed. I will never get over just from the, the change from being, even working on The Sopranos, from being a struggling writer who, um, Here's some things that writers will identify with. I would finish a script and people had to read it within seven hours of me turning it in because I would finish it around two in the morning and I would come in at two and I would expect notes. So people are reading your work right away. And anybody who's been working on scripts at home knows you give it to people and who knows if, I mean, I personally have like neglected to read so many people's uh, that's now that I'm done, I got to read everybody's stuff, but um, just getting it read instantly. And then the things that I was writing after the pilot and a couple of episodes into the series, I didn't have to sell those scripts anymore. They were going to get shot. They mm-hmm. had to because the train is running. And as terrifying as it is that I need another script in eight days, everything that I was writing got shot. Mm-hmm. And you learn so much, like two people in a room working with different directors, like how many times are you going to do this scene you got to make it different every single time you can make it different. If you, if you really try, what can you do to make it? Why does it feel familiar? Don't do it again. And, um, the, I mean, the luxury of being a, a, a writer in, in, in show business and writing scenes and knowing that everything's going to get shot. Um, it's, it's, you're so spoiled. And then to have an audience, that's the other thing that people are going to watch it. It doesn't really matter how many of them there are. You literally don't know if you're ever going to be heard. Sure. So all of that, um, which, you know, forget about like working with a great cast and being surrounded by talented writers and hiring people um, who, who've never done anything and seeing them become great, you know, writers, directors, whatever. That's like, I mean, that's the part that strokes your ego is like, of course, you know, you know I was right. Like, I found him. I, I found right. her. You know, I have two people. Uh, uh, on my writing staff who were, who I met, I was, I taught one semester at USC. They were both students and like, you know, they're both great writers and they kind of were when I met them, which no one needs to know, but they, 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 it's why I hired them. But to see their careers happening, to see first time directors getting, you know, awards and things like that. And also working with like people who are deep into their careers or, you know, it's just the, the, the creative satisfaction of taking this unit of like sometimes 700 people are involved in making the show in a season, forgetting about how many background and all the actors and everything that we hire and turning it into this product and kind of like being in every, and you know, you know me, I mean, I'm notorious for this, but I'm kind of involved in every phase. I don't do everything, but I, I'm a witness to everything. I see everything that gets done. I check up on it. It's, um, that's the part I processed is, you know, it's gone from the feeling. And I think I talked to Vince Gilligan about this, but I was saying 
the, the, the transition that I've made is the feeling from feeling like I've lost something to feeling like I made something. Yes. And that is like almost like I'm almost too superstitious to say something like that. Does that sound egotistical or no, whatever not it at is? All. But I mean, you it is psychologically it. very help. Well, I've, I've always been proud of it, but it's kind of like it's, it's like it and I were not, not together. And to like, you know, seven years is, Longer than college for most people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, to have the same job for seven years in, in show business is v- very unusual. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, one day you, you turn it off, you turn off the lights and we're all going to see each other again, but we'll never be together in that thing. That was, well, that was a pretty, that was pretty emotional. Yeah. And especially, you know, when you have, cause I've had a lot of jobs in the past and when you're in it, you're like, oh, this is going to last for a while. And then all of a sudden it's over and you're like, where did those several years uh, guys, like, it's just over. I have people, you know, the characters have aged as much as the actors. You know, we've gone a few more years on the show than in real life, but you know, marriages, divorces, children being born, uh, you know, homes being bought, uh, you know, people winning awards, people trying new professions, people, you know, just like all the stuff happening within the sphere of this experience. And, um, I don't know. I'm saying it all out loud. I'm like, oh my god, I'm jinxing it. But it's no, it's, you can't. Oh, now well, I don't. Now I can't because it's over. Yeah, and you don't have the power. They to can't jinx take it. that away. Do you, oh, you, I do. You, you, you don't. I do. You, you think so? Oh yeah. Okay. No. <laughs> well, I, are, do, so are you happy? Just as we're sort of wrapping up, are you sure. are you happy with? Um, do you do you feel? I mean, obviously, you're. I would assume that you would be happy with the show. But do you do you feel a sense of completeness where it lands in the end? Even though we don't, that, we don't know what that is yet. Do I you think you can complete? tell from talking to me that I'm like you know, I reached a point. I told you I want the audience to love it. It is no matter what I did exactly what I wanted to do. Good. So we have no idea how that will be perceived or what it'll mean to people or. You know, I took it exactly where I wanted to go. And that immediate group, unless they're lying to me, of my real, you know, my my wife and that family, my writing room and that family, and the actors, you know, the crew, all the people, everyone seemed to be um, – thought, thought that it was the way to do it, you know. Who knows? You know, that is the weirdest thing about episodic television is ending things is not part of their skill set. It is the most new – it's the newest part of it. it. It really is. Every by nature, episodic TV does not resolve. Right. You can kill character and so forth, but it's got to come back the next week. It's got to propel itself. Even the, the the season finale has to propel you into the next season. So here you are, and this is where you're leaving them. And that was uh, that's a life that's a life moment. Well, that's the best you can. I think that's the best you can do is just make the thing that you are happy with, and the and the, and and then your circle is happy with. Because if you are every season like you said earlier like well we got to raise the bar then like then you're chasing audience expectations and then that's too and the story can too, get out of control it's too result oriented as opposed to i think i think people and also i don't think you can sustain it no. i think it just like it, it becomes a different it becomes like cuz you can only go so <laughs> exactly so that's why it's more important i would say to be process oriented than goal than 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 result oriented it'd be a dream to be like that i'm not saying i'm not result oriented <laughs> i would like to talk that way as if i were evolved but i did feel like um I had this ending for so long that it was one of the things on the show that I didn't try and run away from. Yeah. And what I'm wondering is if it airs and it bombs, if everyone's going to come out and say like, I, I never liked it. I didn't want to tell you you were so into well, you it. Can't, you can't, you can't control that. You're like, you just, no. you just have to, you just have to, you know, stick to what you feel good about. I've been, I've been, I've been good about that. I'm, 
extremely susceptible to other people's opinions, but for some reason or other, I always still end up doing what I want to do. That's and good. It's it's stubbornness or something. I don't well, know. Well, if you didn't have that, you wouldn't be here. That is true. <laughs> that is true. It is a good skill. So, uh, lastly, do you want to say anything about the movie before we... Yeah, it's called Are You Here? It opens on August 22nd. It has Owen Wilson, Zach Galifianakis, and Amy Poehler in it, and it's very different than Mad Men. Um, my intention was kind of to write about things that were on my mind that are not in the show, obviously, um, and to sort of make a a bit of a throwback, a bit of a 70s movie. I love Five Easy Pieces. I love The Last Detail. I love these films. And to do a sort of um, gr- a little bit grimier, a little less glamorous version of of a story about what holds people together. Mm-hmm. Um Zach and Owen play best friends. You don't really know how that they are friends. And one of them needs to get on drugs and the other one needs to get off them. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it sort of, it has a, it, I mean, you, it, it has a lot of humor in it. And obviously they're really funny guys, but the sort of, maybe it's my own like def- defectiveness in genre. The story is really told to recreate real life. And like those films did in, during that period. And you hopefully will get a sense with – with a, I mean it has a real plot. It has a real story. But you will get a sense of these guys think that they're living in a movie. They think they're two stoner buddies. And then as the story goes on, you realize like, oh, no, wait a minute. He has a drug problem. But he's, <laughs> he's, he's fucking crazy. And, um, and Amy is fantastic. I mean it's a dream actually you know, to work with people that funny and to see them. I think comedians a lot of times are – more capable of of giving emotion because it kind of comes out at the last moment. It can be maudlin sometimes, but they just, they, I recognize them as people. In fact, everyone I cast on Mad Men is, is, is pretty funny. Oh yeah. Um, and I think people know that now, but they play kind of serious, but they all know when they're making jokes. And there was something great about seeing Owen and Zach together playing these extremes. And Owen is like guileless. He's easygoing. He's like likable. He's irresponsible. But he is taking care of the, his his friend Zach, who is, you know, a blowhard and a grows his own weed and is like got this philosophy about like you know anti technology, anti society, and you start to realize like, well, he Owen's character is taking care of him, but when Zach inherits all this money, you you basically have a new problem because his sister doesn't know why the family fuck-up is getting all the money. <laughs> and the two of them together, Owen and Zach together, are going to figure out what to do with the money, and Zach's ideas are not exactly rooted in, in reality. So for me, it was a way to talk about a lot of things that are going on right now, to sort of um, talk about the ugliness of the world that we're talking about right now, to talk about all of the alienating factors in modern society and how amazing it is to actually have someone. The first line that I had in the movie that I sort of built the movie around is Owen sort of is questioned about his friendship with Zach and uh, um, why he's friends with him. And he says, that's the thing about friendship is that you see it on, on TV. No one, no one eats alone. People go with each other to the doctor, but most people are alone. And the thing about friendship is it's rarer than love because there's nothing in it for anybody. And I kind of wanted to, build my way to that. And I think you see it in, in the movie and there, there is a lot of emotion. It's pretty funny. You know, I never, I never, um, it's my sense of humor. So I like, (laughs) (laughs) they, 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 they really, they really play real people and the characters kind of switch 
places over the course of the story, which is great. And Amy, um, you know, you work with someone like that. We talked about at a certain point, you know, she is such a finely t- – first of all, she loved playing Zach's sister because they, they kind of are – when you see them next to each other, they could be brother and sister. Right. And they're kind of like – they have a – and she's, she's the adult in the movie. She's kind of the killjoy. But she – everyone, like in most of the things I write, everybody has a reason for doing what they do. But we had a conversation at a certain point where like how far do you want to turn up the funny? Like you can make this so it's not real right? if you want to. And she just found a way to keep her in the real zone. And, you know, she's a, she's a very fine actress. I think you see it in the movie. So, so are you here August 22nd? Yes. And then Mad Men comes back next year um, or, or in the spring, I would assume? It, it's a top secret. Yeah, but it's oh, okay. like, uh, I'm pretty sure it's April. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's top secret for me. I'm <laughs> guessing. Sometime around there. At a certain point, I, I'm going to say it's April enough where they're going to be like, stop telling people it's April, it's May. I'm like, well... You can let me know. Okay, fine. It's April. <laughs> but it's, okay. really, it's really good to see you. And, it's good to see you, too. Uh, I always great... enjoy con- talking to you. And yes. I, it's so flattering, the things you say about the show. It no, well, me... I mean, the show, I fucking love the show. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited but sad at the same time. Because it's night. you know, when you have, when you have a show, like, you perform a relationship with a show, you're like, that show's always there. And then right. you're like, it's not there anymore. I feel that way uh, um, about it, you know, about other shows. I think, you know, may I'll come back and talk to you when it's over and you will see what emotions were in our life that we put in the show. Yeah. Because when you ask me that question, all I'm thinking about is these episodes that no one's seen and that's what it is. It's like I used every it's, it's kind one of your, aspect it's, of it's that. It's your emotional diary at the same time. Yeah, and that pathetic. <laughs> no, it's good. You'll, you'll always have, have a, that. I have such a low tolerance for alcohol, but I'm an incredible enabler. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Good Thank to you see so you. much. Chris. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new. Stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top, in his Cuisinart, or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free Right now on Wondery Plus.